the states or abroad, no one's safe from the talk is a fraud. In the states or abroad, no one's safe from the talk is a fraud. The following goes beyond the show and beyond the gram to bring you all the fraud that's fit to be uncovered. This is the Fraudcast, and now here's your Fraudcaster and the woman behind Frauded by TLC on Instagram, Katrina. Hello and welcome to the Fraudcast. I am Katrina, Frauded by TLC. And I am Hanakawa. And welcome to 2020, you guys. Can you believe it's the new year, our first show of the new year? Yay! First show of the new year. Everything's a first today. Yeah. First (laughs) day back to work for you. It hurts. How was that? It's like I I honestly went back. I was driving back and I'm like, I don't remember how to get to work. And I got to work. I'm like, (laughs) I don't remember where I park. And then I went inside. I'm like, I left my laptop in my car. Oh, no. Yeah, that was my. It was definitely a Monday. It was like a Monday of all Mondays. And everyone was making dad jokes about it being 2020 and people who wear glasses. And oh, my God. It was just hard. <laughs> oh, just hard. the eye, 2020 eyes. I yes, guess. yes. They're like, this is the year for, like, perfect vision. And I'm like, oh or God. looking back and noticing all your mistakes. Eh? Oh, hindsight is 2020. See, ah. that's the first I've heard of it referred to that way. All I've heard is like roaring 20s. Like everybody has been referring right. to it in that regard. And a lot of the New Year's parties were themed roaring 20s out here. So everyone mm-hmm. was in their, you know, 20s, you know, um, where the clapper girls kind of thing. But Right, right, right. I was so. I was home, as were you, I believe. Uh, I was here hanging out on, on Instagram Live with, with all of you guys, all of the... <laughs> Trash followers, the fraudsters, fraudcasters. I don't know. What do we call them? Fraud followers? The fraudsters. Fraudsters? I like yeah. that. <laughs> I think I think it I think it's perfect. Our team, our team at the Fraudcast and our fraud consultants in the field. The fraud they, give us, they give us information. That's fantastic. <laughs> Just got some inst- uh, some information today that uh, confirms Annie is in the United States. That oh, really? A fraud contributor from the field, yeah. Ah, how'd they find that out? She posted a screenshot from Instagram about she was having problems. I guess she'd gone back and forth from her with her account from private to public a lot. Mm-hmm. She was trying to go back private, and Instagram was like, okay, but when you're, all the people that are pending to be your, like, followers, like, you're going to lose those. It's just so you know, we don't, like, we restrict this after a while when you do it too much. Oh. So she posted, like, a sad face screenshot. Okay. And you could tell in the top corner, it said, uh, was it like T-Mobile, Boost T-Mobile? And it had the oh. time. On the, and T-Mobile is only accessed for USA. That is yeah. not an international service. And the time she posted it lined up with the East Coast time that was listed, that was on the screen grab. No. So we we actually, <laughs> we had somebody who reached out to her and was like, uh, that shows that you're still in the United States, X, Y, Z. And she's like, oh, no. And she like, it oops. Off. Oh, my goodness. So. <laughs> but that came from a fraud fraudcaster in the field or a fraudster or a fraud consultant. I'm not sure what she wants to be called. But <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it. Yes. So we... Um, we are the Fraudcast. For those of you guys just joining us in the new year, 
we have a Facebook group called The Fraudcasters. Welcome to join us there. I am frauded by TLC on Instagram, and you are Cactus Fruit Juice yes. on Instagram. Yes. Well, we have to be careful. It's cactus underscore fruit underscore juice, because I found cactus fruit juice, and they're really just about cactus. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> imagine it was a name that corresponds to what they actually are. Oh, yeah. So, good. yeah, don't forget those underscores or you're going to be following sweet succulents, which isn't bad, but <laughs> I do follow that person now because I have to. <laughs> do they follow you back? That's no. The They're probably Aww. just like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not into that. Anyone who looks at my page is like, what, what are you? I don't know. I'm not a Michael. blogger. I'm nothing. <laughs> But um, <laughs> that's not true. You were co-host of the broadcast. Yeah, mine's just like the page. Mine's the page for the madness that is. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. My goal is to get uh, one of my goals for the podcast this year is to get Chrissy Teigen uh, to take notice of the podcast. Oh my goodness! And she loves I, the show. I think she like picked it up less than a year ago. Also, yeah, like, she's all in hardcore, right? Oh my god, yeah. And I tag her and I message her and stuff all the time. But of course, she's not going to see it on Instagram because I'm sure she doesn't manage her own DMs and stuff. And they're no. never get seen. They're never marked as seen. So they're when you have that many followers, like nothing goes to your inbox. Like you have right. to actually sit all day and search your other. And no celebrity has time to do that. So right. Right. So I don't know how it's going to happen, but, you know, it's the beginning of the year. It's a whole new year. We've got 12 months to make it happen. So let's make that happen. That's going to be the, <laughs> the Fraudcast's um, New Year's resolution. Yes. It will be like a senpai notice me type thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Uh, I'll have to explain later, but basically. Okay. <laughs> what it for reminded all, For all my weeb friends, basically, we need senpai to notice us. Okay. Um, it rem- it reminds me of uh, back in the day when David Letterman was on the air. He always wanted to meet Oprah, and he had this thing every single night that was like this countdown or days without without meeting Oprah. And then he finally got to meet her. So it was this huge thing. And it dates oh. me. It shows you what my age is <laughs> when I was watching David Letterman. But uh, if any of you guys remember that, you know, hit me up. Let me know. And in any case, um, so here we are. We have a really exciting, exciting show to start off the new year with a bang. We have a former visa officer, U.S. visa officer on the show tonight. And he's going to talk to us about the process, the K-1 process, all of these things with the process, um, his thoughts about specific couples you know, maybe why Michael was denied and why Annie was approved after they'd only met each other for eight hours. And yeah. we also sourced, we crowdsourced this on Instagram <laughs> and Facebook, and you guys had some questions. So we are going to put those to him as well. And uh, why don't we just get to it then? Hi, and welcome to the show, Agent C. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on with us. It was my pleasure. I've been very excited to talk to you guys. So tell me what your job was and what that meant, like what your role and duties were. Like what's your background? What gives you any kind of authority to be here on the show with us rather than just some Joe Schmo I found on Reddit to, you know, spew out of his ass? Yeah, that's right. Um, So I used to be a career foreign service officer at the uh, U.S. State Department. 
And one of my jobs when I was working there was at a uh, consular post in southern China. Um, and the job I had when I was there was to be an immigrant visa officer. So um, as part of the job, I would do adjudicate something like 30 cases a day. And it ranged from all across all the different immigrant visa categories, um, you know, spousal visas, conditional spousal visas, children, um, parents, brothers, sisters. Um, we also had categories for investors, um, certain types of qualified employees, and all, but also uh, the K-1s. So I would... When you say adjudicate, what do you mean by that? Um, so you get... So what... What that means is you get a case in front of you, you got the person in front of you, and you have to make a decision. An adjudication is basically a decision. Okay. Decide. So are you interviewing the person? Yes. Okay. So the way it works is that every person who applies for a visa has to come to interview with you. Um, you interview them, you ask some questions, and then you make a decision about whether you're going to approve the visa or not approve the visa. Um, and in immigrant visas, um, it's a little bit different than like a tourist visa where you can just straight up deny and kick them out. Um, you have, uh, if you're going to decide you don't want to issue a visa or you think the underlying relationship is is fraudulent, you have to take some uh, special steps. But basically my job was to s decide if the person who was in front of me at that time is going to get a visa or not get a visa. And so I would do about uh, 30 a day. I did probably over the course of my time there, did several thousand of these adjudications um, and several hundred K-1s were, were part of that. Usually I'd probably do maybe, you know, between two and five a day. Okay. So when you say you make the decision, does that like the, the whole visa process that takes years and their paperwork and it goes through all yeah. these different offices, it all stops with you and you're the that's, ultimate decision maker. That's correct. So an applicant for an immigrant visa or for a K-1 visa is going to have done a lot of different paperwork up to that point. They have to file up what we call a petition with USCIS, that's US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, once that's approved, um, then that goes through a bunch of other processing where they collect other data. That's all checked over to make sure it's complete. And then it's sent overseas to an embassy or consulate uh, where it reaches my desk. And then I sit there at a, at a window you know, if you think about going to a government office or like getting your driver's license, you're at a kind of at a counter with a person on the other side of the computer. That's what the mm -hmm. visa process is like, except you have bulletproof glass between you and the oh. uh, the applicants. Oh. <laughs> uh, so you're there interviewing them and you have to you have to decide, does everything in the packet and everything that they're telling you satisfy the conditions for issuing that particular class of visa? So have you had, like, do you get the case file before the, well, before the person comes in for the interview? So you've had a chance to review everything um, and then decide, or how does that work? Because if you're the decision maker, you need to have all of that information. Right. Typically we get the case files that morning. Oh, okay. So it, it, it was very, it's very rare that you would ever get the case file before you actually sit down and interview the person. Typically... What happens is, especially at a high volume uh, posting, is you sit down at your window, there's a stack of, of folders behind you, about 30 of them, and you just pull them one at, one at a time, open them up, look at it, you know, interview the person. Sometimes you'll, sometimes, especially when you're new, you'll open it up and you'll review the documents before you call the person up. But after you've done a, a bunch of them for a while, you can just call the person up and 
review the paperwork while they're standing there and ask them questions. So there's not a lot of advanced work done um, when you're reviewing the file. Um, so they spend years putting this paperwork together and you review it for 10 minutes before you interview them? Oh, not even 10 minutes. In oh, wow. Ways. Yeah. That sounds it, about right in government, though. <laughs> yeah. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm it's speaking worse. because I'm, I'm in there, too. So it's, it's, it, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's even worse for, the, for what we call the non-immigrant categories, the people who are coming on tourist visas. They, do all, they fill out this really long application. Uh, they pay a big fee. They come in and get fingerprinted. And they're at the window for maybe 30 seconds. And it's a quick yes or no. You just like glance through the paperwork and go, yes, it's a legit relationship. Like you glance through the pictures or whatever, the receipts of the hotels of their well, that, stays. Like, Yeah, if you're, doing a, if you're doing a relationship visa, typically you'll look at, well, for me, I would look at the pictures. I'd look at the supporting documentation, the financial stuff. I didn't really care about, they, they'd give you, they'd give you reams of, of chat logs and, and, uh, and phone records. But, you know, you don't really know that from, from Adam, right? You could, you could, make something like that in Excel in a weekend. Mm -hmm. So I never really consider that to be much of much value. What you're, what you're looking for is what can you glean from what they're saying about the person and what the pictures in front of you show. I liked pictures. Not everyone really relied on them. Sometimes they just rely on talking to the person. And you have to you know, figure out really quickly, is this person trying to fraud me or not? What's, what's going on with this person? What's their, real, what's, what's their motivation? What's the petitioner's motivation? Do we have something approximating a real relationship by the by the definition of the law. Okay, so it sounds like you have a lot of discretion in like within I mean within with certain certain confines, right? Uh-huh. Can you can you explain that a little bit like how much discretion and sort of what your rubric like barriers are like this is your world and you have discretion within that or do you have very strict SOPs if you have this or this or this or is it a lot of it is it just a judgment call of that individual officer well it depends a lot of it depends on the visa category so if we're going to focus on relationship visas yeah let's do that the way it's supposed to work is if you're doing so I'm going to use I'm going to use a little bit of jargony terms but bear with me I'll, I'll, I'll explain it if you're doing uh, a spousal visa and there are three three categories of spousal visas for American citizens. There's the, the IR1, which is for a person who's been married two years or over two years. There's the CR1, um, which is for someone who's been married less than two years. The C stands for conditional. Um, and then there's also the K1 for a, for a fiance. And within those, um, the way it's supposed to work is that by the time it gets to you, USCIS has made a decision about the relationship. You have an approved petition in front of you, and USCIS has decided that their relationship meets the the underlying uh, legal criteria to for someone to make that kind of a uh, an application. So the the relationship has satisfied USCIS that the American citizen and the foreign uh, we call them a beneficiary. Okay. Um, meets the requirements to be issued a visa for that purpose. And so what you're really doing, what you're supposed to be doing is um, checking for ineligibilities because there's a, there's in, in the, in the underlying legal statute, there's a whole list of all kinds of ineligibilities for people who are trying to immigrate to the U S they range from things like having certain uh, types of diseases to certain types of criminal backgrounds to being a member of a totalitarian party. Um, so <laughs> since I was in China, that actually came up more often than you might think because China's still controlled by a communist government. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, things like, uh, you know, people who've been in who've overstayed their visa in the past, who have tried to smuggle uh, other people over the border in the past, the whole, whole big list of, of ineligibilities. So you have to check for those. And then you're also checking to see if there's any new information that might materially impact the underlying decision that USCIS made. Now, the word material I'm picking very intentionally because if if you're you know if you're practicing law you know that materiality has a very um, specific it sets a specific threshold for for evidence right right if you're at, right you're taking somebody to trial for a crime of some kind mm-hmm. um, so we use the term we we use the term um, material misrepresentation meaning that a type of basically someone's frauding you in like a big way they faked their passport they faked their marriage certificate. They faked um, their birth certificate, for example. This was especially um, bad if you were dealing with like people trying to smuggle children. Um, oh wow! Right. Check, okay. Yeah, you have to check for fake fake birth certificates, um, and that could be a, a grounds for ineligibility. And so you're checking for things that USCIS didn't have access to, to do kind of a double check on their uh, decision. But if you're not able to contradict to find material evidence that contradicts USCIS's uh, decision, you're supposed to uh, move ahead and try to adjudicate them. And okay. so where discretion comes in is that while that's the way it's supposed to work, in effect, visa officers can hold a case up for virtually any reason if they think there's something fishy going on. Okay. And is, is that, that a, is that, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, I have a question branching off that because you're saying your authority right then and there with the interview is to say yes or no. Is there any case where something is pre-approved and the interview is just happening for formality? Does that ever happen? Um, that's a good question. Pre-approved, that's a, that, I'm not sure there's ever a case where something is pre-approved, but there's certain types of, of visas that are they're not spousal visas, where you know you're going to approve absent something um, wild happening. And that's for things like diplomatic visas, right? Okay. You know, a, a country's government says we want diplomatic visas because we're sending these people to the, to our embassy in the United, in Washington, D.C. Um, the odds that you would refuse that for any reason are extraordinarily high. Gotcha. Are, are, sorry, extraordinarily rare. Um, so it's not pre-approved. Um, but it's almost certainly going to be approved, barring some some crazy scenario. But beyond that, no, I think that, you know, the the decision to approve or disapprove a visa really is made right at the time of the of the interview. Mm, gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to, so to recap, getting to the, that window there is the paperwork has made its way through UC. I see. US CIS, yeah. US CIS, okay. Yeah. And they have made an initial determination that the relationship, so let's focus on relationship visas here. Sure. The, they've made an initial determination that the relationship meets a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to you for further analysis as to whether that is a legitimate relationship because is that different standards so it sort of like funnels its way down or i think the what it's really more of an informal relationship the 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 official sort of routing is that uscis makes a decision about the relationship then a bunch of paperwork is assembled and some perfunctory background checks are run 
but because anyone who receives a visa is required by law to appear before a consular officer and be interviewed and have their ineligibilities determined, that provides an, an extra screening mechanism. And you know, one of the things that they do as part of that extra screening mechanism is just to do it, just double check USCIS's work. I don't think it's, pre it's not prescribed by regulation or the law, but it's something that's done as a matter of practice because okay. here's, here's the applicant before you. It's like with, you know, someone, let, let's use Michael and Angela as an example, Perfect. right? Some, someone at USCIS got this paperwork and he's got a list of He's got basically a checklist, and I'm not an expert on USCIS. Um, I had friends who worked for USCIS while I was doing my visa job, so they told me a little bit about how the process works. So, um, you know, if, if I get a, a slight detail wrong, um, <laughs> I, I pray in advance for the for the mercy and forgiveness of your listeners. <laughs> so, but basic, but basically, they have a set of criteria, right? A list of criteria that that have to be met in order for them to approve. And they're gonna look at the evidence in front of them and make a decision basically on paper, whether this relationship as, you know, as presented by this evidence meets the criteria. So they'll see pictures of Michael and Angela. They'll see that she's been to Nigeria twice in the last two years because there's a requirement for K-1 visas that you've met once in the last two years. That's by the way, how Robert could get away with meeting Annie once and still having her technically be approvable for a K-1. I know that question comes up a lot. How in the world yes. could someone who's met someone for eight hours? Um, <laughs> that is on the list of questions. Yes. Yes. Check. <laughs> yes. So, so they've got their checklist. They've got these pictures of Angela and Michael. They've got, you know, receipts. Uh, they've got evidence of their phone calls or whatever else they submitted. And if it checks all the boxes, then, okay, they'll approve the petition and it moves on to the next step. But at that point, um, no one's gotten to talk to Angela or Michael. It's only when the paperwork has weaved its way through the system, gotten to, to the embassy in, in, in Lagos, and the visa officer has the file in front of him and Michael's standing right there, that they can really start to, to dig into the relationship in a way that a USCIS officer never could. And so you know, and especially in a place like Nigeria, which has a reputation for being a high fraud area, they're going to do a, they're going to try to do some extra due diligence. And because he he's right there, he can give information that mm -hmm. CIS never could have. And and, it not, and not just from what he says, it's from, from how he reacts. Right. They ask, there's something you know, there's incredible value as a lawyer who has spent 10 years interviewing witnesses in my office. There's an incredible value to interviewing them face to face. Yeah to determine credibility and their mannerisms and things like that. And that you can't get talking to them on the phone or That's just right. looking at their paperwork file. So I completely understand that there's a, there's a, even if it is through a window, you're still face to face and you can see sort of the, you know, I guess the genuineness of, right. of them. And you, and you're, and actually you're trained, you're given some basic training in how to read uh, subtleties of body language Oh, that was going to be one of my questions, because that yeah. has to be a major indicator of truthfulness and how they dodge questions, maybe how long it takes them to answer, how long it takes them to formulate an answer. <laughs> right. And, and they're and they're little and I, you know, the really good people take years of training to, to get it. But when people are lying, there are certain things that their faces do uh, there. Sometimes they'll be saying no, but their heads nodding yes. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and there are all all these little 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 tells that if you're if you're if you look very carefully, you might be able to pick up. And if you pick that up, then you're like, then and and it contradicts what your paperwork says. You might think, hmm, I might want to, I want to examine this a little bit more carefully. It sets and, up your spidey senses. <laughs> yeah, and because you know, at the end of the day, the um, U.S. immigration law, and particularly the law that that governs visa issuance, is there to prevent illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to try to find fraud where they where they think it exists. And in a place like Nigeria, you know, that's it's you know there it's so it's so renowned for fraud it has a scam named after it oh, um, right true <laughs> yeah is there are there any other countries like is there a list somewhere of like top fraud countries or is that dynamic and always changing it's always changing depending on the socioeconomic circumstances of a particular place obviously and and not to be not to be crude but typically the worse off a country is the more you have to kind of question the motives mm-hmm. um i know that when when i was working in china the, the the place where i was posted was considered the highest fraud uh part of china other other postings although they didn't handle uh, immigrant visas were you know there are different regions that are seen as more high fraud than others you know in a place like china for example you've got the rich coastal enclaves, you know, you're not going to be worried about those areas because their their standard of living is relatively better off than in the interior. But the interior provinces, you got to really be careful for. And then there's one particular province uh, that's known as Fraud Central. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So and the reason for that is because the the worse the economic situation is, the more likely people are going to be trying to use any avenue they can to escape it. That's correct. That's yeah. the thinking. Yeah. And, you know, People, people are, and and certainly we can be we can be sympathetic to that. Every people are always looking for a way to improve their situation, mm-hmm. and some people make the decision that coming to the U.S. by any means necessary is the way to do that. And if you're if you're living in a, that's why you know, for example, places like Japan or Western Europe, there's very little concern about fraud from those areas because they have a comparable standard comparable standard of living to us. But where it's a bit tougher or in a place like China where you have restricted freedoms, um, very, uh, you know, high income inequality, you know, people are going to feel like, you know, maybe they've seen the limit of what they can do there and they're going to try to go somewhere else. Especially here in the U.S., we have a huge overseas Chinese population, very easy for them to integrate. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But our um, job is to, is to weed that out wherever we can. So. And so I'm trying, trying to get back to your question of what places are high fraud. Um, it's always changing with Nigeria always being at the top. Hmm. Is it the number one? I think so. It, ha- it has it has sort of a legendary status. <laughs> um, I can't think of any place that's more well known for fraud than, than Nigeria, <laughs> although there's certainly other places. It by no means has the monopoly. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So- so going back to that sort of piggybacking off that question, mm-hmm. is there when it comes when a file from say Nigeria, say Angela and Michael's file comes to you if you were in Nigeria, just mm-hmm. you know play along here. Is there a presumption that the do you operate off a presumption because you know I'm a lawyer, everything's about presumptions and burdens of proof, right? Mm-hmm. Is is there a presumption that the relationship is valid and you're looking for ways to invalidate it? Or is the presumption, especially with a country like Nigeria, you're going to assume when the file hits your desk and Michael shows up in front of you that the relationship is a sham and you're going to poke holes in it and prove that? Like, 
what's the that burden or pr- presumption? It's it's it, that presumption is dynamic. It depends a lot on the particular visa officer. Some people are some of them are just more aggressive, but it also <laughs> depends on the on the fraud profile of the country. Um, you know, a country that's seen as lower fraud, I don't think is going to have as much of a problem. But a country like Nigeria, yeah, you know, the officers are probably going to be a little more skeptical. And you know, especially when a when a file comes to your desk and it checks a lot of the of the common fraud patterns, then you're going to say, you know, be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to your antennas are going to go up and you're going to say, I'm I'm really going to give this one a hard look because I'm already seeing some some big, big trouble signs. And which is, you know, if this is premature. You, you can tell me. But that's a that's really what I think happened to happened to Michael. Well, OK, let's 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 break that up for a second. So talk generally this category of things that set off your antenna. Mm-hmm. Yours or in general or, you know, just as sort of in the in the office, um, mm-hmm. the position. Talk about things that will set off your antenna and set off those spidey senses. And then let's get back to Angela and Michael and the specifics of what could what you think might have happened there. Right. So there are so common fraud patterns. Um, some of them are culturally are have cultural context, things, relation types of relationships that are out of place for the culture. Um, but typical ones will be a significant gap in age. Um, what we might call what I, I think I call on the last Reddit thread I did, I called it a, um, what I call the reverse age gap, which means you have a, a female, uh, participant in the relationship who's much older than the male participant. Um, I, you know, I've gotten questions about age gaps before, um, it's not uncommon for there for there for there to be relationships where you have a really old dude uh, bringing over a really young really young lady, um, and some sometimes the relate the gaps can be can be very significant. But those relationships that doesn't set off a fraud. Well, I mean, let's, I mean, let's... this may be a little sexist, but that doesn't set off fraud because it's a dirty old man is normal versus yeah. a cougar woman. Yeah, old men are creepers, man. You know, they 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 can be they can be dirty old men, and that and that's and you know those cases are actually pretty easy. You know exactly what what they're going for, and for the and for the female beneficiary, you know they're getting a usually there, and you know this is terrible to say, they're usually from a poor. You know, it, let's take Michael and Juliana for example. Uh, that's I think, where I was going to go with it. <laughs> I think I think that's a that's going to keep us out of trouble. Um, you know, Juliana is a young model from an interior part of Brazil. It's very poor. Um, Michael is a rich, although, you know, people debate how rich he is. I don't, I, I don't know if you see that on, on, on Instagram, but certainly on Reddit, people are, some people question if he actually has that much money. Um, are you familiar with what we do here at the broadcast? <laughs> we, listen, we listen dig deep. Yeah. <laughs> we dig deep into that stuff. Yes, what we're aware. Then? Is, he, is, is, he, is, he, is he as loaded as he appears? Uh, he's He's got money, but he's not a millionaire, not like a billionaire 10 times over or anything like that. I mean, he's perfectly comfortable. Okay. So, but, so, but for, from Juliana's perspective, right, he's a, he's a wealthy American man. And, you know, you can, you can, you can debate on kind of what they're in it for. I think Michael was probably pretty straight, as upfront as anyone is on, on the show. Um, <laughs> but that, but that relationship makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, okay, he's kind of an, you know, might be a somewhat um, awkward, but wealthy American guy. And here's a really attractive young, 
Brazilian model who doesn't want to stay in the profession she's in or in the or from the or in the area of Brazil that she's in. It's you know, if they have enough of a connection, it's a it's a win-win situation for both of them. It may not be the it may not be the Shakespearean definition of love, but it it's logical. <laughs> it makes sense, right? You could you you know what you know what they're in it for. And so they that wouldn't set off any red flags or fraud, even though it does seem very transactional. It, that seems to you a legit relationship. Yeah, transactional isn't against the rules, right? Um, um, well, <laughs> let, let, let me back let me back that up. Let me back up on that. There's a certain type of transactional that's not against the rules. <laughs> If Juliana wrote Michael a check and said, right. I'm going to give you $5,000, you're going to file this paperwork for me, and as that soon as I get to the U.S., I'm going to disappear, and you're just going to show up when we have to do interviews, that is not allowed. Um, but, but if it's transactional in the in the other way. Sort of colloquial, that, yeah. you know, kind of a dirty old man. He's not as much of a dirty old man as we initially thought, you know, and young, hot trophy wife, like mm – -hmm. There's a certain transaction. She's going to get something out of it. He's getting something out of it. It works out. Exactly. And it's really, it's interesting we see it that way, not to go off on a tangent, but with the reverse one, I'm thinking Angela and Michael versus Juliana and Michael. We look at uh, Angela sympathetically going, she probably doesn't know better. He's scamming her. Mm -hmm. When we look at Michael and Juliana, we go, they're both getting something great out of it. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting it, it, double standard. It's a little bit, yeah. We do we do tend to think of these things differently. Although I will say, in Michael of Michael and Juliana's defense, he is definitely by far not the dirtiest old man we I've ever seen. <laughs> not at all, I'm sure. Oh no, no, no. He's he's of the lower order of of of, of creepiness. He's I, I would consider him even not creepy. Yeah, like we uh, thought before the show started, we thought he was going to be the creepy old dude, but it turns out he's actually not. <laughs> he's pretty. He's pretty good. I think the producers work really hard to make him look bad. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you know somewhat awkward. You know, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I don't think he doesn't quite know how to handle the fact that he does have this beautiful woman who's smart and articulate and funny and, you know, and everything. But, you know, they've they've seemed to it seems to work out well. So, I mean, he's obviously got something redeeming about him because she doesn't yeah. seem to genuinely um, care about now, him. Now, do they take into the fact the the I don't want to say mental state of the American citizen sponsoring Um I don't, want to go, I don't want to go into IQ, but kind of like, you know, you talk to them, you know, they're easily, they're gullible, they're, uh, they're touched in the head a little bit, you know, or they're, they're going to fall for something. I mean, did, is there any kind of consideration for, That's is, is the sponsor problem. mentally able to sponsor someone? That's a really fine line. I've dealt with that a few times. Um, there were, I, I, I want to protect the privacy of the people involved. Not, not that I could recall anything that would, that right. would give away, but there, I do remember having a case in front of me where I was really concerned about the mental state of the petitioner. Um, I was, I was very concerned that the petitioner did not have the, the faculty to quite understand what was going on and that he was going to, and that he was going to get uh, frauded or he was being used um, by someone maybe perhaps a bit unscrupulous that, that, that case caused me a bit of heartburn. So it does come up. Um, but the thing, I guess the challenge is though, is, you know, 
the us visa officers, you know, we're we're not trained psychologists. Who are we to really say that someone who meets the legal criteria to file a petition is not competent to make that make that decision? Um, you know, if we find if we find obvious transactional fraud or you know, the the beneficiary tells us at the window that she has no intention of of ever seeing seeing the guy, we could do something about it then. But you know, it, it's actually I'm gonna I'm gonna give props to Angela. That was probably she she said the last episode, she said probably the most sensible thing I've ever heard her say. Just <laughs> just that, you know, it's my responsibility if they're trying to scam mm-hmm, me, not mm-hmm. the government's. Don't right? protect people who don't yeah. need protecting. I don't need protecting. I, you know, who she had a point they, there though. You you could you know, I I mean you we can debate that for sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot there, but that was the most sensible thing I've ever heard her say. <laughs> Good for her. Um, but it, you know, if you if you have serious questions about the mental state of a of a petitioner, you know that that can be really challenging. Um, that can be really challenging for a visa officer because on the one hand, are you are, who are you to deprive you know an American citizen of something he has a right to do versus you know, protect, you know, providing a measure of protection. It's tough. Mm-hmm. And, and well, it's all- yeah, I mean, if, if both of those people were in the United States, there yeah. wouldn't be really any way to stop them from marrying. So True. you're, yeah. you're there in a capacity to establish fraud to an extent to, because you're trying to weed out unlawful immigration. Right. Uh, and, and somebody coming in fraudulently is obviously unlawful, mm-hmm. but yeah. At what point are you the adjudicator of their moral decisions? That's right. Yeah. And I think that it, it takes a little while to figure that out when you're doing when you're doing visas is is, you know, you're not you're not responsible for the decision for the, for the potentially bad decisions that somebody is making. You're there to you're there to, to fulfill a, a, a legally mandated uh, role. Um, so, yeah, make that, sure they meet a certain legal threshold, but you're not the arbiter of their moral compass. <laughs> that, that's it. That is that is exactly right. Um, I like I like the way you said that you're not there to police their decision making. You're not responsible for their ultimate decision. If they want to engage in that relationship, that's up to them. I mean, we we as TV viewers, we judge. That's why we watch the show. That's right. But your job is you're not out there being the marriage police and that, you you know, it comes vis-a-vis this marriage application, sort of, but you're not there to adjudicate the relationship, the marriage itself, sort of, the decision that's, that's of that. Well, yeah, that's right. One other thing I wanted to to mention too, when we're ta- as while we're while we're on the subject of capacity to to petition somebody, is you think about the the threshold it takes for a court to declare an adult in, in, mentally incapable of doing something, it's right? For for a court to deprive a person of their liberty, mm-hmm. um, that's very high threshold and you know, that requires a, le- a legal process, mm-hmm. right? So, Fair enough. Know, we are so, us visa officers are so far from that, you know, we have to <laughs> give a little bit of deference. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to Michael and Angela, though. And, you know, let's, let's go back to their example. Mm-hmm. So per, Michael and Angela's file hits your desk, mm-hmm. and then Michael, you know, 10 minutes later, Michael's going to show up to your window. <laughs> Talk me through what you would do and and then your your independent thoughts about what may have happened so the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at you're going to see probably cuz usually the 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 files are always reviewed ahead of time by local staff and they're just there to make sure the papers are all signed and stuff like that but sometimes they'll highlight things that they notice 
So the first thing you're going to see is I'm going to see is that there is a large age gap between Michael and Angela, Angela being much older than Michael. Uh, that Michael, falls into that fraud. Those, yeah. Those have- so, so we've already got one red flag. Um, we're then going to see. Good. Yeah. Well, the first red flag is the age gap. Okay. The red flag is the fact that Angela is much older than Michael. Um, in particular, in particular, Angela is 54 and Michael is in his 30s, if I've got that right. Um, so, you know, Michael's never been married. He doesn't have any children of his own. Angela is essentially at the end of her um, reproductive career. Um, <laughs> she's got that, one egg. She's got one more <laughs> egg, right? Um, so that's that's going to be a red flag. She's from a... I would say um, I'm trying to find the right the right the right way to say it. Um, she's not from Atlanta. Let's put it that way. She's not from what we would call an urban part of Georgia. Um, so she comes from a really rural area. Um, the types of you know the economic you know you might you might be thinking about well what's is there any economic opportunity for him there? Um, you're going to wonder kind of wonder a bit about that. How's he going to fit in in a place like that? Um, I think that would be a hard transition for anybody. Um, not to not to not to cast aspersions on Hazelhurst, Georgia. I'm sure it is. It has its own myriad charms, but it would be a bit of a transition <laughs> for for Michael. Um, okay, but wait, wait. Okay, so let me piggyback on that though. So to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. you've got this guy go, who wants who's going to go to this economically depressed sort mm-hmm. of rural area with this older woman, like. Doesn't that can't that also weigh in favor of showing it's a legitimate relationship? Like, why else would you go with this woman, it, it, but for love? You're not get you're not going to like, oh, I'm going to get a rich Manhattanite, you know? Well, I think I think the flip side of that is is he really going to live in Hazelhurst, Georgia, or is he going to get on the first bus to New York, or just stay in Atlanta? Um, you know, because you you think you think about it in terms of okay, here's someone much older than him. Um, it's unusual. I mean, I don't know the Nigerian culture especially well, but, you know, from where from in China where I was operating, it was very, very unusual to see a younger man go for an older woman. That's a very, very atypical. I think that pattern, it tends to be, you know, not everybody is Emmanuel Macron, right? Um, I think he's, (laughs) he's the exception. Um, so I so that that's you're already kind of wondering about that. Then you're thinking, in addition to those kind of strikes against him, he's going to go to an economically depressed kind of rural area. How how in the world is he going to, you know, do any do anything there? You know, it's it seems more likely that he would just, you know, get out of the airport and make for the make for a big city as quickly as quickly as he could. I think that's the way the someone looking for fraud would uh, would evaluate it. That they're just they're just they're not genuine about going to live there. So you're trying to get inside their head about whether they would, you know, they say, yeah, I'm going to go live in this trailer, this double wide with Angela and her six grandkids. Mm-hmm. But you don't really think that you have to sort of get inside their head and, and, and make a determination if if they really are planning to do that or if they have no intent to do that. And once they hit stateside, they're taken off. Yeah, you're basically trying to figure out, OK, this is the story that this guy is telling me. Is he lying because it seems a little implausible. Is he is he telling the truth? And do and am I acquiring enough evidence through this process to to tell USCIS, hey, you guys made a mistake, and here's why you made a mistake. Here's what I here's the new information I found. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, USCIS they don't have that. They don't know everything about 
Nigerian culture. They don't know, you know, what's normal for a guy of Michael's age. Um, there's just a lot of information they don't have access to. And so they kind of rely on the, the embassies and consulates to, to double check their work. And the other thing with Michael, and this kind of gets into a, a, an aspect of, of, their, of, of his interview. Obviously, we weren't there. Cameras aren't allowed inside the embassy. But, you know, I was always struck when I was watching him on the, on, on before the, the last season of Before the 90 Days. Um, you know, I always, there always seemed to be a little bit of an ambivalence in his, in his affect about Angela, but not about going to the U.S., and if you're a visa officer and you're talking to him and he seems kind of ambivalent, he seems kind of flat about talking about her, but maybe much more excited when talking about going to the U.S., you're going to start mm-hmm. to question his motives. And, you know, we don't know for sure. We don't know what happened at that at, at there. But if 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 I was a v, if I was sitting there talking to him and I caught that dynamic a little bit. I'd really start to question his motivation. And I do kind of suspect that's what happened to him. Obviously, I'm armchair quarterbacking it, but uh, <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm, I'm a little bit wor- wondering if, if maybe he came off just a little bit, um, little bit uh, detached when talking about Angela. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that, um, I don't know if they brought it up in his interview, but, you know, wanting children, that's been a major focus of the storyline. Yeah, I think. It could have come up. Um, you know, it depends. It depends on whether the visa officer had the presence of mind to ask that question, or if they, <laughs> or if they were focused on something else. It's a legitimate question um, to ask. Um, I, I just don't know if they if they asked it. Obviously, if you know, let's say a visa officer said, "Well, you know, and you know, your Angela is fifty four years old. How do you really expect to have a have a child?" And he says, and if he gave the answer he gave on last season, where you know you know, it, God will just figure it out for us. You know, maybe that's for, in, in some ways, a, a, a touching testament of faith, but also, you know, it, it's, it could also say, this guy's not really serious. Mm. So, something he wants, he knows he can't have, and he's just trying to, to act the part. Okay. Because, so I want to touch on this a little bit. You talked about some of the cultural norms mm-hmm. that you would see, like the, you guys on the ground would have, you know, access to and information about, you know, in, in this particular culture, it's not normal for this kind of relationship or things like that. I think, so with Michael's case, they've made a point on the storyline to make it that having your own bloodline mm-hmm. children is important for their them culturally that's why they were like oh yeah you can go sleep with any other woman just as long as it's your blood Mm -hmm. so something like that seems like it might play into the authenticity of the relationship if that is really a big deal for a nigerian man to have this bloodline then he can't and he can't legitimately do that with angela then that tends to go, okay, well, yeah, he's just playing the part, like you said. Exactly. And if a visa officer was sufficiently um, informed on cultural norms, he's going to, they're going to, they're going to, that's going to raise another red flag and they're going to act, act upon that. And, you know, once you start getting a critical mass of red flags, your mind starts going to, okay, I don't believe this guy. Let's steer it towards what we need to do to, to put put this on the path to getting getting denied or getting revoked. So yeah, let's talk about that. Um, uh, Michael got a letter that had a handwriting on it, 
yeah. that there was a subject of a little bit of controversy, but we assumed, we took the position that it was a real genuine, it was probably like the visa officer's handwriting on it or something. Mm -hmm. He was, it was determined that he was ineligible and that it would recommend denial. How does that like, um, from an administrative perspective, how does that play into this this system? It's not a visa denial yet at this point. He's he's determined ineligible. What does that mean? And then, yeah. so let me see if I can walk through it with some with some precision. The okay. letter, I, I I I didn't pause or anything, but I saw what he was holding up to the phone on that episode. That's a that's a state we we call that a uh, a, a revocation letter. That's a okay. standard form letter that all embassies and consulates have. Um, I think I think I, I think you guys brought this up that someone was was saying that well it's not on official letterhead or it's not on official paper. Um, that's not really a factor for something like this. I think you know I think you guys correctly pointed out that USCIS send has has their you know fraud proof paper paper that they send uh, requests for evidence on. This is just a document that's typed up in Word or, or sometimes generated by the by the software that manages the visas themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it can just be done in Word or just printed on a, a regular piece of paper. But the language in there is very standard, what we call revocation language. So what happened is that Michael's, Michael's visa was refused under a section of the Immigration and Nationality Act that uh, technically is, is puts a case on hold pending some pending the receipt of some documentation or some administrative action. Um, the case, his visa was denied under that section of the law and better explained that his file was going to be returned to USCIS with a recommendation from the embassy that the underlying petition be revoked. So the embassy will, will write a memo, they'll include additional evidence explaining to USCIS why in the embassy's view they made a mistake in granting that petition and why um, USCIS should amend their decision and revoke the petition. So he hasn't been, he's, he's been refused a visa um, under that section of the law and his petition has been slated to be uh, revoked or I suppose you could say denied. We always say revoked. Um, so because basically- Because the petition, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So that that's at a at, that's from a I guess described somewhat technically what happened. The letter is authentic. It was either the visa officer or a local staff member who wrote a note on there for him. Um, you know, I think you know the letter will prob probably I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, um, but it'll have information about it'll tell them you know to wait for be contacted by USCIS. Um, you know, maybe they gave some additional, an additional note or something for him, or it could have been his handwriting for all we know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm guessing it, I'm guessing he called Angela from his car, like right after he got out of the embassy compound. Mm -hmm. That's, but that, that's just my guess, but the letter is, the letter is fine. It's not fake. Um, <laughs> and what, and so when a decision like that is made, so this came, this has come up too. I think, I think you've gotten questions about it and that's something I've seen. If if the if the basis for revoking his petition had to do with the number of people of dependents Angela had, he would have gotten a different letter. Mm, okay. A letter requesting saying that they're going to revoke the petition means that the underlying basis for the petition, which is the relationship, the petition is there to say that by the government standards, this is a bona fide relationship. 
Well, if the, okay. if the officer has questions about the petition or wants to revoke the petition, the relationship is the thing that they don't believe is authentic. The okay. issues regarding the number of dependents, sometimes an excess number of dependents can be a fraud indicator because a visa officer could say, well, geez, Angela's got, you know, one daughter, another daughter. They don't know that she's in jail, but she has a daughter in jail. She's got six grandkids she's taking care of and an elderly mother, and she's a hospice worker. Geez, she needs some money. You know, maybe maybe there was a financial incentive for her to bring this guy over. Maybe she's getting, getting oh. to help deal with that. So that could be a basis for the for the for a recommendation of a revocation, but it's just one of several factors. Typically, it does not control. And if Angela, but if it was just the number of, of dependents and everything else was deemed to be fine, they would have refused his case on either under the the section of law that allows a case to be put on hold, or under a different section of law that says that you cannot issue a visa to somebody who will be a will become a public charge. That is someone mm. who, who the government thinks will go to the U.S. and start collecting welfare checks. Correct. But yeah. that but that ineligibility can be very easily overcome by getting another bona fide sponsor, co-sponsor. Okay, that's that's a really good question that, because a lot of people had this question that said, does Angela not make enough money, all of this stuff. My thought, and please correct me on this, was if her income wasn't sufficient Mm-hmm. Or like it wouldn't have gotten to the interview phase yet. Like they must have deemed her as being okay. She had a, she met either with or without a co-sponsor. I don't know if she has one, but she either she met that economic threshold, or Michael wouldn't even be at the interview. Or no, is that she, not? Yeah, she, he could have gotten to the interview if she had if she had insufficient means. It's a little different with K ones than it is with uh, relationship relationship categories because it's a different form, but. It, it's very common that you'll get some you'll get a case where the the document for the co-sponsor either they did the math wrong or something like that. You, you look at it and you say this, this isn't enough. You know, sometimes what'll happen is that you're required to submit your tax returns with these sponsorship forms, and USCIS will have had only maybe two years, but then you get the third year, and the averages don't work out anymore. Uh, it's very formulaic, but. In that case, it, so even if he had gotten there, and um, even if he had gotten there, and uh, you know was found to to um, not have the correct sponsorship information, they would just say, "Okay, you know, you don't qualify now. Get another co-sponsor. Come back, and you're fine." But that would have been a different form, a different yes, it, it kind of been, response to yes, Michael. It would not have mentioned the the, the petition. It would have said. You've been refused under, you know, some some, you know, some code or some different code. And please bring back here are the documents you need to bring back would have been a very, very different letter. OK, and that's that's interesting, though, because the way you're describing it is they can get all the way to the interview and then go. Your sponsor doesn't make enough. That's right. Like I think the assumption online from a lot of people is if they're getting to the interview point, then they're the sponsor is solid on the income bracket. And you're saying that they have to also submit tax returns. How far back to prove income? Three years. Interesting. It was three years when I was doing it. Okay. Um, okay. The, the, I am aware that the new, the current administration has uh, tightened up to a degree some of the public charge provisions. So maybe they're going back further. But when I was doing it, it was three years. Wow. Okay. 
So it could get all the way through the process and you could look at it and go, this person doesn't meet the threshold here, go find a co new coast. You need a co-sponsor. You need more money. You need somebody who has a little more stability. Right. You would either say, you know, your primary sponsor doesn't make enough, or you'd say this co-sponsor you provided is bad, bad co-sponsor. Um, that, that, ha that was one, that was a very common reason to refuse cases. Hmm. Now, is it um, is it cut and dry on the income? I know they have the income brackets per dependent, how much you need to make to be eligible to sponsor. Is there any deviation from that list or is it prescribed? You have to just make this much if you have one dependent, this much if you have two dependents. Is yes. there any discretion there, with that? There's a table. So, okay. Um, I, okay. So if I get this wrong, your, your listeners are going to, are going to, are going to let you know, but <laughs> I, I recall correctly, it's 125% of the poverty income guidelines. So we would say it's 125% of the pig because we call the poverty income guidelines, the pig. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <The> acronyms. <laughs> and so, so whatever our poverty guideline is, it just has to be 125% of that. And then there's yeah. probably a percentage increase per dependent based off that right. table. We, we would have at our windows. Typically this is, this is probably a little too much detail. We'd have a piece <laughs> of paper tape to on one side of our window that just showed the pig and the number for the number of dependents. And so you just, okay, you add up your dependents, you look at the income, you compare it to your table, and it's yes or no. Very formulaic, very cut and dry. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. 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 And, and just quickly on that, if somebody isn't working, but they have like a shit ton of money in the bank, is that sufficient? Yes. Okay. There's a formula for how assets can be counted. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you won Powerball, right? You know, and mm -hmm. you're just sitting, you're just sitting pretty. Yeah, you, you could you could potentially be fine. Hmm. Okay. What about if somebody is on like disability? Oh, that'll just that that's a, that'll that'll raise some red flags. Um, Social Security SS Social Security or SSI income is not cannot be counted, and I believe it. I'm a little fuzzy on the rules, but it 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 it, it, it actively counts against you if if you if your beneficiary is already receiving welfare benefits, they they can't be a sponsor. You're going to have to get a co-sponsor. Um, and that can also be a, be a red flag for a potential fraud. Hmm. Interesting. So if I was on, on benefits, mm -hmm. which is entirely, you know, foreseeable for me right. because I have multiple sclerosis. So, you know, theoretically I could be in a position and mm -hmm. I would become ineligible to sponsor somebody. Say I got into a relationship with someone overseas that wouldn't, that would count against me. Well, if you if you if your income if your income met met the guidelines, let you know if you're if you're a, a you know work for the government, right? Um, you your income will probably be sufficient to uh, spot to qualify as a sponsor on your own. But if your sole source of income is is Social Security, you know you got to think about it from the perspective of the of the public charge ineligibility, right? If you're receiving welfare and that's all you're getting. And you bring someone else, then they will also be receiving welfare, potentially more welfare. Ah. And the government, the government is charged to prevent that from happening, um, which is why you have that that sponsor requirement. Now, if if you are on welfare and you get a sponsor, let's say your rich uncle is going to help you out, um, <laughs> that could potentially be fine. Okay. While we're on the topic of sponsorship, uh, there's this, you know, we hear the on the show a lot, this 10-year requirement. I'm responsible for them for 10 years. And I know that that's often very misunderstood because 
I think they they make it out and and probably intentionally to this drama about oh I have to support him for ten years, mm-hmm. and this term support I think is a misnomer because it's my understanding is it's not this I have to take care of their day to day expenses even mm-hmm. after we've divorced or whatever for our relationship is over it's just if they go to try to get welfare or some kind of government assistance, you then have to pay that to the government. Can you clarify this 10 year support stuff? Um, I think your interpretation is correct. Um, I will say that even for us, that was a mysterious requirement. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Cause that happens after you. So it's, it's it's a different, it's a different office, right? For us, it's a paper exercise to make sure that they meet, meet the requirements, but I think people were a little bit puzzled on what exactly that means and and how enforceable is it really? Um, And, you know, that, um, which is a complex question. I'm sure someone has, has tried to answer at some point. (laughs) Yeah. We've had some immigration attorneys that have addressed it. Um, And it it does, I think that does fall outside of your, what your specific role is in in approving and denying visas. But, um, but I think, that's something a lot of well, in on the same vein, a lot of people were asking questions like, Colton Larissa Colt pulled his affidavit of support, so how come she's still here and she's got three domestic violence arrests? How come she hasn't been deported? Why is she still here? Yeah, people wanted to know if you have any insight if, on that. It may not be directly related to your job as or former job as a as a yeah. visa officer, but. So that that's really a USCIS or ICE question. Okay. Um, so, but I could say just really generally, the the rules, the the procedures, and the rules that will govern a removal process are lengthy. So it's mm, not like okay. like she can her he can pull her affidavit of support and she gets arrested and then ICE is knocking on her door the next day. Um, you know, as you know, in the government, you have to. There's always a whole <laughs> series of procedures. And and one of the other things, too, and again, you know, some, some of your of your listeners who are immigration attorneys will have a better insight into this. But once a once they step foot on U.S. soil, the level of protection that they're afforded increases dramatically than when they're at us overseas at an embassy or consulate. A lot of the legal protections that we that we are afforded also are afforded to, to non to non-citizens, not as many as we get. But um, the thresholds that have to be met in order for the government to take action increase as soon the minute their their foot lands on U.S. soil. Interesting. Now, does it does it make a difference if they're married yet or not? And I asked this in the case of I think Sinjin was arrested for I don't think he was actually charged, but for having weed on him. Yeah, that's did a- he have to? It, I'm very I'm I'm wondering if. We're we're guessing when they got married, but would that have been an issue if he was not married yet? Well, he has to apply to adjust status. And again, your immigration attorney listeners will know exactly when they'll do a check on his background. But, you know, when, if, if he was applying for a visa, we would look at his at his criminal record. And if he had been the, the term in the law is if he had been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude. Um, Mm -hmm. which is then defined in regulation, he would be ineligible. So if he was arrested and not charged, you know, that might not be an an ineligibility, but then he's got the drug stuff and there's a whole nother Mm -hmm. section. 
so he so they could be married and currently in the process of applying for the status change and that could be a hiccup because of that it could potentially be i don't i don't i'm not familiar with the with the rules on that um gotcha but i i it probably will come up because i would imagine that they have the means to do a background check they have the means to query query those records Hmm. just on just on their own systems Okay, so let's get back to to Michael and Angela um, before we move on to some other mm-hmm. other specific couples. Can you hypothesize? You've talked, you've alluded to it, and 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 whatnot. But can you hypothesize as to what happened about why he was denied, and then um, maybe commentary on their next steps? They each had attorneys give them advice that were conflicting. Can mm-hmm. you um, comment on those? Yes. Um, so with Michael, my suspicion is that he went in for his interview. The visa officer identified a number of red flags related to his case. Um, Angela's 54. He's in his 30s. Angela is an older woman. He's a younger man. Angela is not able to have children. He presumably might want children. That might It might be presumed that that's something that he is important to him. Angela lives in a very rural part of Georgia. That doesn't seem like a place where someone like Michael could really thrive. Um, He may have presented kind of unenthusiastically to the visa officer. Um, That's my own personal suspicion, you know, from from having done it is if, you know, he gave the kind of answers that he did during the show about Angela versus um, his enthusiasm for going to the U.S., I think that could he could be seen as potentially being a little bit insincere. And so I think that the that the 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 weight of all those concerns convinced the visa officer that Michael was Michael and Angela did not have a bona fide relationship. And therefore, uh, the decision was made to send the petition back to USCIS with a revocation uh, determination. Um, now, I want to preview a little bit the next episode. We we saw in the preview that Angela is going to flip out to Michael about the engagement ceremony. That wouldn't have pl- had made any difference to the visa officer's decision because uh, oh, I, she was saying that, oh, you didn't tell them about this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thinking and, that impacted it. Well, because okay. they know the engagement ceremony and that's part of the cultural thing, right? That's not actually marriage. That's just a ceremony celebrating the engagement. Exactly. And Which wouldn't be seen as a, as a marriage. No, and, and even if they had one... But wouldn't it be a sign of a bona fide relationship to have an well, engagement ceremony? You're saying it wouldn't. It would be a non-factor. I think it would because, you know, if you're really in this to create... If, let's say you're doing this for money. Angela's, Angela's going to get a big check at the, at the end of this. You could convince a bunch of people to put on some fancy clothes and pose for some pictures, um, you know, for doing doing a ceremony... I would often, I would very, very frequently get get those types of pictures and that type of evidence submitted to me, and it wasn't especially persuasive. It didn't really tell me a lot about their relationship. All it showed me is that they, they a bunch of people came to a place and they took a picture together, um, okay. and I and I, I never found that especially convincing. So I don't think Angela's correct uh, to chastise Michael about that. I think it was the, it was rather it was this this big pile of of red flags. So. The visa officer decides to send the petition back for for revocation. Um, Michael just couldn't overcome the number of red flags that he had stacked against him. Um, regarding next steps, um, so let's talk a little bit about the lawyers. Angela's lawyer recommends that they wait for the petition to come back 
and they try to appeal it. That's really bad advice, Angela, if you're listening <laughs> to that. Bad idea. So K-1 petitions. Disclaimer, we're not giving legal advice. No, we're, we're, we're not lawyers, but, but we're your friends, Angela. We're trying to give you friendly advice. Um, K-1 petitions are different than petitions for other types of spousal categories in that they have a six-month validity. So by the time that petition got to the embassy, it was probably about three months old. And by the time it gets back to USCIS, it's going to be about six or seven months old. So by the time that piece of paper gets to a USCIS officer, it will already be expired. And they're just going to administratively deny it or revoke it because it's, it's dead. So waiting for, waiting for it to come back and trying to appeal it is a complete waste of time. The petition's going to die on the way back to the U.S. Um, so um, ap- with apologies to, mis- to, to Mr. Lou Esquire. Um, <laughs> I do not think that was the, the, be- the best advice in the world. Um, similarly, Michael's attorney suggested getting a K-3 visa. In all my time doing visas, I think I did one K-3. They aren't used anymore. They're an obsolete category of a visa what angela should do her best rap chance for success is to go to nigeria marry michael over there and then apply for a spousal for a spousal visa um what we would call a conditional spousal spousal visa it's a different set of paperwork um it'll probably add another 12 to 18 12 to 18 months so if she goes for the conditional spouse route That'll probably be 12 to 18 months of additional time between now and when she could get him over. Um, But what you'll see from that is that um, she did a K-1, it got denied, but even in spite of that, they got married anyway, and now they're doing a spousal visa. So it'll show continuity, um, which is better than her trying to do another K-1 or to try to wait for, for an appeal. I really think that, or a K3. A K3 is just a, you know, I, 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 was, I was so surprised. I went back and read the K3 rules, and it just it, it didn't make <laughs> sense um, to me. So that's her So best. if they get married in Nigeria, that adds a la- layer of authenticity to their relationship. Yeah, it'll and show so that. It, it, so look, we, we're really serious. Exactly. Uh, we, we would... We would all, we would call those we would say it would be a K one to CR one CR one means conditional relative first class that's a spousal a spouse married under two years um, but we would we, we would you know you would you would see that it was just a a, a progression and so I think that's going to tell the best story uh, for Angela and I know that she doesn't want to have the wedding over there but she could just all she has to do is go sign a piece of paper at the courthouse. She could still have a ceremony back in the U back in the U S really, if you think about it. Right. right. Well, I know that, you know, that the American people know that, but Angela <laughs> doesn't know that. Yeah. She's stubborn. That's her role. She's got to be stubborn. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that's my, that's my view on that. I think that neither of them were particularly well served by their legal counsel on, on the last episode. Um, but if, if, you know, if Angela wants to listen to my advice, that's what she should do. No, I asked you this on Reddit and you, you're, you had a great response about why that probably was approved, even though they'd only seen each other for that eight hours. Can you explain that? Because people are asking, how does Michael get denied? And you just explained that very well. Um, but Annie get approved. OK, so with with Annie, um, they technically met the criteria, right? met once in the last two years with some with some additional records of of contact 
But in my opinion, a place like the Dominican Republic, probably Robert and Annie are not the worst case they've ever seen. They're sim- they're <laughs> close in age. Robert's a little Robert's a bit older. Annie's a bit younger, but they're still relatively close in age. You know, it's obvious what Robert wants from her, and it's pretty obvious what Annie is probably is going to get out of the relationship from him. And it just wasn't bad enough to be worth their attention. Um, I think that okay. I think that probably the visa officers there are really jaded and cynical, and they didn't have enough evidence to. Nothing came up from Annie that was enough for them to to feel like they could send it back, so they just let it go. Mm. And it's you know, and you get to that, you get to that point where you don't feel great about it. It's like we were talking about, you know, judging people's decisions, right? You don't have enough to make a clear case for fraud, so you just got to get, you just got to let it go, move on. Otherwise, you're going to be, you're going to be at the window all day and creating a lot of headache for people. <laughs> In my world, we call that insufficient evidence of a violation. So. Yeah. It sounds similar. There's yeah. it's, maybe it smells bad, but you can't prove it. So here's your visa. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that that's that's exactly okay. right. Okay. Um, now this might have been before your your <laughs> this might have been before your time um, on the show, but John and Rachel. Ooh, I'm not familiar with those guys. Oh yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> what season any, was that? Any insight? So they were on the first season of Before the 90 Days. So they were about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And Rachel lives in New Mexico and John lives in the UK. And John has been denied a visa because he has, a, allegedly because he has an extensive criminal record because he used okay. to beat the shit out of people and damage some eye. He has a really bad criminal history. Mm-hmm. I don't know how recent the most recent one is. Mm-hmm. What I've heard with them is that he would need a waiver to overcome that. Right. So if you, he has, do you, do you a, offer any insight? Yeah. So if he has a criminal background for, for getting into fights and assaulting people, that would be considered a crime involving moral turpitude. And he would be refused. He would be deemed ineligible for a visa based on having been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude. There are waivers available through, I think you have to go through the department of justice to apply for those waivers, but it's at their discretion. You know, and I'm not sure exactly what the criteria are to, to issue that because we would just give him a letter, say, here's how you apply for a waiver. And he has okay. to have competent, competent counsel or be able to do to go through the waiver process himself. And, you know, I don't know what the criteria are. I suppose there are cases where they don't issue the waiver, but sometimes there are cases there are. They're going to look at it on, on, an, on a case by case basis so that if he wants to come over, he has to get a waiver for his for his. Uh, criminal background and eligibility, but that's why that's why he was refused because he's not he's not eligible. Okay, um, so uh, I don't know if you watched the show while you were still doing your job. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if that person came across your desk and you saw the show, would that inform your decision? Is that allowed to inform your decision? So when I was working, I was not aware of the show. It may have been before the show came on, but I think the show was was airing. It was it was airing when I was when I was uh, doing the doing the job. But in China, we didn't get access to TLC. Gotcha. <laughs> so that, that's always a very limiting factor, right? What what you know, cable channels you can get access to when you're overseas. But you know, ideally, the way we structure the way the government structures it is, you're supposed to have a fair shake with any visa officer. So. 
I would think that if you knew the person in front of you was a celebrity or was on a reality show, you'd probably want to hand that case off to somebody who didn't know them. That mm-hmm. way they get as impartial an evaluation as possible. Because, you know, if, if I let's say I let's say I went back to the embassy and um who's who's someone from the last season of before the 90 day um that would could come up could come up to the window. Um Let's well, I'm going to go another season. But let's say Karini comes to the window, window, right? Yeah, I've, okay. I've seen her and I've seen her season. Um, she's not going to get a really impartial evaluation from me because I'm I'm pre- I'm I'm prejudiced to a degree by TLC by TLC's fraud. Um, <laughs> that's that's where I was getting is, you know, TLC yeah. is portraying these couples in a certain way. And does that give them a disadvantage if the visa reviewer knew their story? So that that's kind of where I was going with. Yeah, I think it's probably up to the discretion of the of the visa officer whether they want to keep holding that case. But I, but I think in general how we would handle um, these things is if if you knew who the person was, you probably shouldn't be doing the interview. So again, I'll give you here's here's a different example that that's also kind somewhat germane. Let's say your friend comes for a visa interview. There you go. <laughs> You're not allowed to interview your friends. Um, that's considered to be big 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 no no. If your friend comes Big up for a conflict dinner, of interest, yeah. yeah your, if your friend comes up, you hand it off to another officer. You're not allowed to interview your friends, and I think that somebody who you who you followed on a TV show would fit into the same category. It was funny though. Every now and then, we'd get a famous actor who came in, and uh, all the local staff would would ga- they'd gather around the window and watch because they really wanted to see this famous person up close. <laughs> but because it, it was a famous Chinese actor, most of us had no idea who they were. So True. we didn't. Did you ever it. feel the pressure? Like you have, you have to yeah. accept them because if you deny them, everyone's going to be upset at you. Yeah. Well, especially if <laughs> who's your, who's the fan of the, of the actor you're interviewing is the one who orders your lunch every day. Ah, yes. Yeah. You really don't want to get on their bad side. Now, how does, how does, um, I think, oh, I'm going to get skewered for this David and Annie. And I know before the 90 days, I know the traditional marriage, mm-hmm. um, is that a conflict for a K-1 visa? Because it's not its not legally binding. It's not a document that's signed via the government of that country. But does that impact approval or disapproval of K-1 visas? So I didn't see David and Annie's uh, season. Did they do, they do some sort of uh, ceremony in Thailand? Yeah. I'm, I, yeah, I'm trying to reach back. I believe they did. And I, I know everyone knows... Um, before the 90 days this past season, Ben and Akini also did a traditional marriage. Yeah, well, I saw Ben. Um, I saw his season. Um, so let, let's, in either of those cases, um, if there's no document from the government, no, no, no piece of paper that, that was issued by a government authority saying that they're legally married, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What, you, what you have to produce for a K-1 is you have to show an affidavit that you are an affidavit that you're legally eligible to marry, oftentimes you'll also be required to do a records check and produce something from your local government that says, yeah, we have no, there is no marriage registered for this person. Gotcha. So um, even if they did a ceremony, if it didn't lead to a, a, pa- a piece of paper, they don't care. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or, so like, this oh. other question, that another question that came up is, um, somebody like Rebecca 
mm-hmm. and, and Ziad. So Rebecca has sponsored somebody on a K1 from Morocco before, and then he ditched her as mm-hmm. soon as you know her, he got his his uh, residency. And now she's going to try to petition Ziad. Is there a limit on? how many times you can petition for K-1 and what impact does the previous K-1 approval with her previous husband affect her ability to possibly get Ziad over? Will it affect it at all? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. It can, potentially. If you're seen as a serial petitioner, then at some point they're going to stop letting you bring people over because they're going to start to be suspicious if you're just, if you're just there, um, you know, as a, as a facilitator of, of human, of human smuggling. Um, but what if she's just dumb and makes bad, poor, you know, poor decisions about her love life and she picks these wrong men over and over. Are you at that point stepping in to protect her in her love life decision-making or. I think that it would just, the level of scrutiny she would be subject to would increase successively for each K one she files, (laughs) you know, Sometimes you make a mistake. Sometimes you file for a, ba- a guy who's not going to be all that for you. So that happens. It's fine. But if it's the second time or the or more or more troublingly, the third or fourth or fifth time, you're going to start to ask some harder questions at that point. So for, for Ziad, Rebecca should be OK. She's going to get asked about it for sure. Um, but I don't see that as a as a barrier. I think I personally think Ziad's family is probably going to be a bigger barrier for him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I will say, Ziad, if you are listening, wear your Rebecca shirt to your interview. That's going to really go a long way. Oh, wow. I guess it would, wouldn't it? It's interesting the things that that um, like it's there seems like there's a lot of common sense involved, but like in your discretion, which I think is fascinating. I just think it would be a good touch for him uh, to, wear, <laughs> to wear that shirt. It'll make the, these officers day. That's for sure. <laughs> I think we, I think we also had questions about Mike and Natalie, Natalie, oh, Natalie. Yeah. Like, I don't think we really have the story formed of what's going on or why things are taking a long time, but I guess what's your speculation as to what could be holding up her visa? Yeah. So I have written about this in the Reddit in my Reddit threads. So when you when you are getting a visa approved, um, this is not going to su- be, be surprising, but the government's going to check to see whether you're a bad person. And the government does have um, a, uh, a way to check to see if, if, you know, if you are have the identity of a person who is who is a bad person. And in order for a visa officer to approve your visa, they have to make sure that you are not even close to being a bad person. And if you are seem to be, you know, if, if they're doing some running some checks on you and they can't quite resolve whether or not um, you could be a potentially bad guy, they're going to hold your case up and do some additional work to, to vet to vet that out. In some some countries, some parts of the world, it can be especially difficult uh, where they have um, naming conventions that can that can be a little tricky. Um, China was one of them because um, when you phoneticize a Chinese... Hey, Fraudcasters, I'm here to talk about Factor Meals again. Yes, I love my Factor Meals. That's factormeals.com slash broadcast50. 
Get started on your resolutions with Factor so you are ready for the new year. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, the cooking fatigue, all of that nonsense. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door with over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and so much more. You'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. Not only does Factor offer fast, simple solutions for when I'm too busy to cook and frankly just don't want to cook, they also help me stay on top of my goals. With their offerings like Protein Plus and Keto, I can stay on track. This is definitely going to come in handy for my New Year goals and they can help you too. Factor has everything I need for a week of flavorful, completely nutritious eats. In addition to the ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, extra protein, which is what I love, veggie sides, and way more to keep me energized during this kind of a frantic time. Head to factormeals.com slash broadcast50 and use code broadcast50 to get 50% off. That's code broadcast50 at factormeals.com slash broadcast50 to get 50% off. Hey, fraudcasters. You know, I used to find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. They were the first thing to take off when I got home. But Skims has changed all that. You guys know I love my Skims Fits Everybody t-shirt bras. I own them in just about every shade now. I wear them every single day when I leave the house. And they are completely worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I was not expecting from them was how comfortable they are. Even the underwire bras that I wear all day, I barely even notice. Definitely not the first thing I take off when I come home anymore. Y'all, I'm a 36 double D and I've had a reduction and I've gone up and down and lost weight and gained weight and all the things. And the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, I swear, fits me the best. I finally found a t-shirt bra that I can wear. But not only that, it is the best bra that I own. It holds the girls in so well. And let me just say, Hetero Life Mate really appreciates these bras too. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com. Now available in 62 sizes from a 30A to a 46H. Plus get free shipping on orders over $75. And if you haven't yet, please be sure to let them know that we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show, the broadcast in the drop-down menu that follows. Name, you, you don't have the character or the tones anymore. Mm-hmm. So like for, you know, like someone whose last name is Wong could be, you know, could be any number of Wongs, but you still have to, you still have to figure that out. Um, Countries in the Middle East with with uh, Arabic naming conventions can be tricky. And then, um, forgive me if I get this, get this wrong, patronymic naming conventions, which are common in Slavic countries, also sometimes cause problems. So it is my guess that Natalie's name was close enough to the name of a bad person that the government felt like it needed to put her case on hold to just, just to be sure. Gotcha. And, you know, someone on Reddit met, uh, speculated about this that, um, and I don't know, it, it's a theory. Who knows if it's true? <laughs> Natalie's or Natalie's ex-husband was a successful businessman. And to be a successful businessman in Ukraine uh, probably means maybe having some suspicious ties with the Russian mafia or some other, some similarly unsavory. Oh. And maybe, maybe because she was his wife at some point there, something, something, got, she got caught in the net. Um, that is definitely a theory. <laughs> it's a theory. That's what <laughs> I <laughs> it was a theory. 
my but anyway, my suspicion is she got caught in the net somehow, and they're just trying to resolve that before they can before they can issue her. And you know, I think we, I, I'm sympathetic to. Well, I don't know. I mean, actually, I think it's probably a blessing in disguise for Michael, given the last episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to people who get caught up in it. It's really frustrating, and I and I totally sympathize with Michael. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. You know, he went over to the embassy to try to get some answers and he came out 30 minutes later looking really despondent. Um, you know, there was, there was no chance he was going to get any useful information there. He went, my guess is he went in there, he went to the American citizen services window. He asked about his case and he was at an embassy that was polite enough that they didn't just shoo him out immediately. Um, so either they looked it up there, they sent him over to the immigrant visa section, and they looked up the case and gave him a very generic answer. Mm. Um, uh, one thing to be one thing to be to be clear about: nothing is classified. The, the visa officer wasn't looking at some classified information he couldn't tell Michael about. Um, when they're running security checks on somebody, they're not allowed to disclose that to the applicant. So they mm -hmm. get a, they get a really generic answer. That's that's. It's almost it's almost like a master class in in saying saying nothing while saying something. And that could that could have sparked <laughs> why he came back questioning. Right. Like, did you yeah, do this? No. Did you do that? Because he probably got this generic list of what could entire possibly scene was... impact. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, he got this really vague. Or the entire scene was set up by TLC and said, let's go to this office and, and set this up, even though it, they won't tell you any more than you already know. Yeah, and every embassy is a little different. Some, like where I was, petitioners were never allowed inside. Um, we they used to do petitioner hour, but then they but then they stopped doing it. Other embassies will do a petitioner hour. Um, some of them are a little bit friendlier. It just it just, it really depends on how belligerent they are in 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 what in that part of the whatever part of the world. And so it depends. So there's like a culture of like what kind of people go for the locals in that country, and are they the kind of people who are going to stand in your window for an hour yelling at you? <laughs> um, you don't want that. That's always bad news. Um, so Michael was lucky that he got to speak to somebody. Um, you know, in my experience, that's that that's not that's not always guaranteed. But and I, and you know, the guy believes in aliens. I don't blame him. I'm not surprised that his mind went to like what kind of crazy conspiracy is Natalie caught up in. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just seems natural for, natural for 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 him um i do feel i do feel a little bad for natalie i think she probably got caught off guard with that even though because you know he's he's stressing out about it so much but that's probably it's tlc fraud yeah. <laughs> that too <laughs> producer driven storylines yeah. i don't have evidence to support that that's just my suspicion <laughs> The ever suspicious frauded. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's, that's my take on Michael and Natalie. I think she just got caught in the net. A lot of people have asked about the cost of the visa, mm -hmm. but I don't know that that's anything that you have any special insight on that they can't find other way. I mean, it's, do you have any insight on that? It's always going up. That's my insight. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I call it, the, you have... the questions is how are the how are the um, cast members affording this is usually the question since it's so pricey. Well, yeah, I'm... somebody like Robert. Does yeah, TLC, does TLC help? Get, does he, do they they give them money ever? No, I I know I, I'm saying that from my my window of knowledge, but um, I, I I feel like there might be special occasions where they help out if it fits the benefit of the storyline. 
because I feel like, like I suspect that they paid for Angela to fly to Nigeria this last yeah, time. Yes, definitely. Because she, I mean, she was able to pick up and just go, and that's an expensive flight. That's at to least thousand dollars. Yeah, to just book. So, yeah. um, I mean, unless she just got the the TLC check that week, maybe. Yeah. But. <laughs> So Robert probably saved up. I mean, the visa itself is the le- is probably one of the least less expensive parts. You had a spousal visa. You've got to file for the petition. That's expensive. You have to file for the um, you have to pay for the visa itself. You have to pay for a medical exam to get your med form. Um, sometimes there are other forms as well that you have to do it. It can really be it can really add up. So, you know, I. I Ballpark, maybe you should probably, if you're going to do it, maybe budget a thousand, two thousand dollars. If you're not using a lawyer, if you're using a right. lawyer, it's going to get more expensive. Right. And uh, then it's not even over once you get back over here, because then you have to apply for the change of status, which was right. is like an extra fifteen hundred just to get the the actual change of status. So, and then two years later to remove the conditions, and then yeah, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it is the, the ever the, always the giving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this has been a question that's been brought up repeatedly is um, Angela, the fact that Angela's daughter is incarcerated, mm-hmm. would that have any impact on their process? My answer is I think no, because it's not her. So exactly. the fact that I it don't... gives her more dependence goes to that monetary threshold that you were talking about. But the, just the fact that she's incarcerated doesn't affect their petition at all, right? No, I don't think so. How would they even know? I don't. I can't even think of how, unless Michael mentioned it at the interview. I don't. How would how would a visa officer even know that Michael that, that Angela has a incarcerated incarcerated daughter? True. Uh, yeah. So it, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it would come up. I'm glad you said that because I, I believe that it's a non-factor. I just wanted a professional to say that <laughs> <laughs> because because then that would mean that you know everyone who has a relative of some degree in jail mm-hmm. could be penalized for their relatives bad choices so yeah no i it, it you know I'm, I'm just listing through all the documents you'd see in a file there there's there's really no way you you'd ever know okay so um hanakawa do you have anything else because i think I, i've gone through all these questions i think he's hit on everything so do you have anything else i don't i, I before i have all the facebook last... questions and uh, my own personal questions so i'm <laughs> i'm good <laughs> okay so i have one final question then for you mm-hmm that uh, we have for you is um, what is the strangest story that you have from working in, or if you can't do a top single top one, what are a couple of your strangest stories from your time as a visa officer? There's a lot of of strange (laughs) stuff that happens. (laughs) But one of my favorite stories is, um, you know, the applicants will often bring a lot of stuff to show you, but I had one applicant who was extremely well prepared. She came, she marched up to, to the visa window and stacked up a series of bound volumes in front of me. And then at the center of the window had like a plaque with a poem written on it that the petitioner had written. Um, and it was actually, I think it was not, it wasn't a plaque. It was a hanging scroll of some kind, but it had like a, had like a poem on it. And so I asked her just to let me see one of the bound volumes. And so it was, she had like three or four bound volumes of correspondence, emails, letters, and things that they had written. 
And so the volume that I got, um, I thumbed through for a while until I came upon a section that they were talking about their shared interest in gardening and discussing how they were going to try to each fertilize each other's gardens with their own. (laughs) With their own what? With their own urine. Oh, they were going to exchange. They're going to exchange jars of urine to fertilize the other's garden with. Okay. <laughs> if you're discussing that level of that level of intimacy, I guess you got something real going on. So, did you approve uh, them? I, I approved her. Yeah, I did ask her if I could keep the book, though. You're like, I I need this. That just makes me think of uh, Anna Anna and Marcel. Like, what what kind of bee tips were they trading? Oh my goodness. I'm not sure I want to know that. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, do you have any final parting words for us or any thoughts final or as Jerry Springer would say final thoughts? My final thoughts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that people are interested in actually understanding the visa process. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. So, you know, if I can ever be helpful in, in helping to, you know, identify where the fraud is, what's real and what's not real. I'm always happy to 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 be to be a resource for for you guys or anyone else who's uh, who's interested. Um, so you know, it's be inquisitive, ask questions because you know the, the the truth is out there. <laughs> the truth is out there. Um, well, great. So you can be found on Reddit. And yes. do you want to share your username? Um, just look- or no, or just look for the Ask a Visa Officer. Yeah, look if you, if if you use Reddit and shout out to uh, 90 Day Fiance subreddit, those guys are great. Um, look for my Ask Me Anything style threads. I usually will call them Ask a Visa Officer threads. Also, if your user, if any of your listeners are interested in asking a question or getting some clarification on the visa process, they can send me an email uh, at. Ask the visa officer. That's all one word. Ask the visa officer at gmail.com. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And so depending on, you know, if, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what level of interest they'll be. So, you know. <laughs> be it, careful what you ask for. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, it's just a few emails. I'll, I'll, I'll probably just respond directly. But if it's a high volume, you know, maybe maybe I can do something fun with that. But yeah, they're they're welcome. Your, your listeners are welcome to send me an email at that address, askthevisaofficer at gmail.com. Great. And we will link that in the show notes for you guys. So you can just hit that. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to, I mean, gosh, we've been talking for a long time. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time and informing us of this. I'm sure as the seasons season progresses and as there are additional seasons, we will want your input for those. So I look forward to having you back. Anytime. Always happy to do it. Yes, definitely. So moving on, let's do some shout outs, shall we? Yes. Who do we have today? We have Milika from Serbia reached out to me on Instagram. So I want to say hi to her. Hello, Milika. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She lives in Serbia. She was thanking me for putting the Frauded Night Lives up on YouTube because of her time difference. She doesn't get to catch them when they're live, so she's glad that she gets to see them. So on that note, actually, so hello, Milika. Thank you, and I'm glad that you can you enjoy them. All of my Frauded Night Lives, which is where we discuss fr- uh, Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or 10 p.m. now that Love After Lockup is on, 10 p.m. Eastern on Friday nights, we discuss the gossip of the week. Those all get uploaded to YouTube. 
And new this week, I've also added all the episodes of the broadcast, and every video that's up on YouTube has closed captioning for our hearing impaired fans. That's so, awesome. To help support that, if you can like and subscribe to the channel, that will help support my ability to continue to put all of those up there. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So I will take on the next one, and this one comes from Melody. Uh, she says, your show has really grown on me. I've become uh, obsessed with the fraud. Look forward to new episodes and rush to get the toddler in bed early to have plenty of time to settle in for Friday night, frauded night lives. Life has been uh, a little crappy that your show has been, oh, that your show has been such a needed and appreciated distraction. Love uh, Hetero Life Mate and Hanakawa too. Oh, I always like that. Aww. I'm like, I'm with them. Like, I was not a person who was always searching for the fraud until it kind of touched personally. And now I am like, you know. All in it. Your balls probably in it. Probably stupid <laughs> obsessed. People are like, why does she care? I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> I know. I get that a lot is, is why are you so obsessed with me? Like, it, you know, digging into this, why do I spend so much time digging into it? And I think it's just, I can't help it. You know, I see this stuff that I know is fraud that can't be real, that I just have to dive in and find out. And that's kind of how I got started was I'm like, that can't be real. Right. And then started looking into it. And now this is, you know, what I do on my non-work time. <laughs> All right. So next we have Callum. She says, I love the podcast, not only for the inside scoops, but also because of the chemistry between Katrina and Hanakawa. Please keep up the great work. With that said, I was wondering whether Katrina might be willing to talk a little bit more on the podcast about her experiences with MS. My eldest brother was diagnosed about a year ago, and he's understandably struggling to adjust to life with MS. So when I started listening to the podcast, and I'm one of those who listens to the podcast, but does not use Instagram. I was taken aback to learn that Katrina was not only living with MS, but also working as a lawyer, raising children, dealing with hetero life mate. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of all that, exposing TLC fraud on a regular basis. So Katrina, how do you manage all that? Do you have any advice for my brother? I'd appreciate any insights you might be able to share because I think my brother would, like me, find your story inspiring. Thanks again and keep up the great work with the podcast. Now, that's a mouthful. And uh, yes, I would be happy to share uh, a lot of that. And I don't know that right now is the right form for that. Perhaps I can do like a bonus, sort of a bonus episode talking about MS. I can do a bonus episode talking about sobriety. I know people were talking about that as well. Or I can do like a video and upload it to YouTube. Uh, I'm certainly happy to talk about any of that. Uh, you don't use Instagram, but uh, you can always reach out to me. You can email me. I can respond to your email too, and we can have a dialogue that way. But I would love to do uh, like, an, uh, like a mini episode, not TLC related, but like an extra where I talk about the MS or the sobriety, things like that. So that for those of you guys who are asking. I think that's awesome because even if it's separate podcasts, there's, you know, of course, the people who just want to deal with the TLC frauded, but there's also people that tune in because they want to hear about your sobriety story or your MS and all that stuff. So I think even just a separate live or even a separate podcast episode, like little bonuses would be awesome. Yeah, I think that um, that might be a good way to to approach it. That way, people who are here just for the fraud don't have to, you know, they can choose whether they want to listen to the MS or sobriety or whatever too. So I think that's probably what I'll do is I'll probably do a bonus episode on my MS and maybe a bonus episode on my sobriety. 
Um, that was always a po- that was a popular topic on the New Year's Eve live. Is we it talked was. a lot about that, and that was sort of the purpose of it. Is you know, let's have some you know, if if you're if you're struggling, and this is something that I say all the time. If you are struggling with any aspect of addiction, I am absolutely always here to talk to you. So I am Frauded by TLC. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Frauded by TLC. You can find the show at talkersoffraud.com. A note about the website, the store that's on there right now is going to be coming down in the next week or so. So last chance to get any of those items that are up there. We're going to reshuffle them, getting a new vendor. We're going to change things up with um, some new fun products that we have in the pipeline. So last chance to get what's up there now. Um, and you can find us also on Facebook at the Fraudcasters as our, is our Facebook group. Yes. And our Facebook group is super easy to get into. You just have to answer three questions and you're in. <laughs> and there's no right answer. You just have to answer. <laughs> just let us know you're alive. <laughs> um, and so you can find me at uh, cactus underscore fruit underscore juice on Instagram. Um, and something exciting that I'm doing, I'm actually teaming up with there is no store that's at there is no store on Instagram. And we're actually going to do a giveaway. So I am going to do a 10k giveaway. So it's a little ambitious, but I do want to team up with there is no store. She does really cute, um, let's say 90 day related items. So stickers, uh, canvas bags. They all have sayings on them. Uh, I think the bag for Angela like says or has her on it, like you know the tote bag because she totes. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's a lot of some key- great. Yeah, there's some like great keychains and stickers and a lot of magnets she, she does and her lighters. Yeah. Yes, and she has like a Danielle hologram sticker that <laughs> literally is everywhere. <laughs> so um, keep 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 an eye out for that. If you go ahead and follow me you can follow at there is no store and we're going to have that giveaway information out there um on the 8th of january so very excited about that well and she's gonna have to get um 10k giveaway right you want 10k followers right yes so it's gonna be a little fun so each thousand that i reach um there is going to be kind of a mini prize and then once i hit 10k there's going to be a grand prize so it won't be just a lot of waiting because I know I have a little bit to go, but it's something fun to do in the meantime. Well, let's help her get there, you guys. Make sure you go follow her on social media, on Instagram. And that's our show for today, you guys. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in. We know your podcast listening time is limited. And as always, we thank you for listening and choosing to listen to us. I am frauded by TLC and I'm dumpster diving, so you don't have to. You can find your fraudcaster on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Frauded by TLC and on the web at talkersoffraud.com. This broadcast has been produced and edited by yours truly, art by Sarah Dawdy. Music written, produced, and performed by Umami. Segment producer at iHeartReality TV Shows. Further assistance provided by many unnamed fraud consultants. Hey, fraudcasters. You know, I used to find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. They were the first thing to take off when I got home. But Skims has changed all that. You guys know I love my Skims Fits Everybody t-shirt bras. I own them in just about every shade now. I wear them every single day when I leave the house. 
and they are completely worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I was not expecting from them was how comfortable they are. Even the underwire bras that I wear all day, I barely even notice. Definitely not the first thing I take off when I come home anymore. Y'all, I'm a 36 double D and I've had a reduction and I've gone up and down and lost weight and gained weight and all the things. And the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, I swear, fits me the best. I finally found a t-shirt bra that I can wear. But not only that, it is the best bra that I own. It holds the girls in so well. And let me just say, Hetero Life Mate really appreciates these bras too. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes from a 30A to a 46H. Plus, get free shipping on orders over $75. And if you haven't yet, please be sure to let them know that we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show, The Fraudcast, in the drop-down menu that follows.